Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. That was British Prime Minister Liz Truss resigning yesterday. Uh, Six weeks she was Prime Minister, which is historically the shortest tenure of any Prime Minister in British history. And uh, sort of begs the question of how can the Brits be so good at getting rid of their losers after six weeks, yet after seven years, we're still dealing with Donald Trump. And he's the presumptive nominee for president, again, in one of the two political parties in this country. How does does that work, Matty? Parliamentary system. Ah, that's what it is. They didn't didn't have anything for that in the Constitution, though. The framers forgot that. I mean, 4.1 Scaramucci's is a record, I think, for a prime minister. Yeah. And Scaramucci tweeted that yesterday. I love when 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 Mooch himself hops on the the Scaramucci bandwagon, uh, which is great. Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett gave a big victory to President Joe Biden yesterday when she denied a request by Wisconsin Taxpayers Group to stop the implementation of Biden's federal student loan forgiveness program. Our favorite congressional ass licker, Lindsey Graham, was also in the news. Uh, He was ordered to appear before the special grand jury in Georgia. That's investigating uh, Donald Trump and his efforts by him and his cronies to overturn uh, the election loss there. Uh, And his defense, uh, Graham's defense, is that I was just doing this in my capacity of chair. You can almost see him saying it like a like a like a teenager. Like I was just doing this in my capacity as a chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Okay, and the answer is no, you weren't. Okay, you don't just call up the Secretary of State of a state and say, find me votes for Donald Trump. Uh, So that's going to get real interesting. But Maddie, you've got some additional details on Georgia. Yeah, I think that Georgia should definitely be on everyone's mind because we also had a federal judge uh, determine that Trump lied in his filings against Georgia, and he knew he lied, and he swore under oath, and that was in the John Eastman case, which I know you're going to touch upon briefly. And we also learned that former White House counsel Pat Cipollone and former Georgia Senator Kelly Loeffler testified in the same grand jury yesterday. And we also got some texts from Kelly Loeffler which showed that she wanted Raffensperger to resign, but Raffensperger's wife did not like that in text that was sent back to Loeffler. And finally, we also got some texts that gave us some insight into Marjorie Taylor Greene and Loeffler, where Marjorie Taylor Greene was trying to get Loeffler to basically overthrow the election on January 6th. Yeah, so we've said in here in the back room uh, many times that Georgia could be the most likely place that uh, Donald Trump finally is held accountable, and hopefully uh, people, people like Graham, who, who have helped in, uh, not only sp- spread but perpetrate the big lie uh, and uh, the, the coup attempt. Steve Bannon is in the news today, Maddie. Yeah, a D.C. federal judge just sentenced him to four months in jail for violating a subpoena that he got issued from the January 6th committee. And it was actually uh, four months on each count. There were two counts, but they're being served concurrently. So it's four months total. And he also gave a stay pending a a quick appeal. Couldn't happen uh, to a nicer traitor. And uh, to the ex-convicts out there, you guys will know what I'm talking about when I say I I truly hope that uh, Steve Bannon ends up uh, tossing a lot of salad and folding a lot of laundry in prison. Uh, Jen, Florida. What's happening down there in the Sunshine State? Just don't want us to forget about voter suppression. So our favorite white go-go boot wearing. Governor DeSantis had put in uh, $1 million to investigate voter fraud in Florida, which turned out to be shockingly predominantly people of color who were felons. And it turned out that uh, one of the 20 formerly incarcerated Floridians arrested in August, it turned out that the voter fraud charges had been dismissed. And I, 
I really think it's important that we acknowledge when good things happen legally mm-hmm. and we have to be vigilant and appreciate when the law works out. Yeah, no, we're seeing time and time again that the, the judicial system in this country is is doing its job as a, as a guardrail against uh, a lot of the things that are not readily available in the Constitution to protect our democracy and protect it against fascists like uh, Ron DeSantis. My favorite stand-up comedian, Herschel Walker, was in the news this week. One thing I have not done, I've never pretended to be a police officer. <laughs> and and, and I've, never, I've never threatened a shootout with the police. Well, and now I have to respond to that. We are, we are, we are no, moving no, no, on, no. gentlemen. I have to respond to that. And you know what's so funny? I am work with many police officers. For those of you who may not have caught that, the quote is, I am work with many police officers. I'm not really going to belabor this. I'm just going to say, Georgia, you deserve so much better than this. Donald Trump was also in the news. A federal judge in California ordered the release of 33 documents, eight of which are applicable under the crime fraud exception uh, to to attorney-client and attorney-work privileges. These are key emails from Trump's former election lawyer, John Eastman. These emails have to be submitted to the J6 committee. And the judge said they are related to the crime of conspiracy to defraud the United States. That's some pretty heavy shit that should hopefully have kept Trump up all night last night because it speaks to intent, which is what you need to successfully convict someone who's indicted of crimes of this nature. And the judge basically said that Trump knew that voter fraud claims were bogus and illegal, and yet he pushed them forward anyway. So it'll be really interesting to see where that goes. This week also in the New York Times, a big article that 370 Republican candidates are running for election on November 8th who are on some level election deniers, people in every state. Probably the most frightening of them all is Carrie Lake, who's running for governor in Arizona. And she was on State of the Union this week with Dana Bash. My question is, will you accept the results of your election in November? I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result. If you lose, will you accept that? I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result. Are you corrupt and a traitor and going to refuse to have a peaceful transition of power? I'm going to win the election, and I will accept that result. Republicans think they they just say the same thing over and over and over again. Somehow they don't seem nefarious or duplicitous or absolutely corrupt and treasonous. But this is a good segue into our guest today, this whole notion of election denying and coup attempts and stealing elections, because he lived it firsthand in a very brutal, horrific way. He is Michael Fanone, and Michael served as a Metropolitan Police officer for 20 years. He spent the majority of his career as a vice cop, participating in over 2,000 arrests for violent crimes and narcotics trafficking. He also served as a special task force officer for the FBI, ATF, and DEA, and has earned over three dozen commendations for his work. But he's best known as one of the many law enforcement heroes who nearly lost his life during the insurrection of January 6th, 2021. He's the author of the new book, Hold the Line, The Insurrection and One Cop's Battle for uh, America's Soul. He currently serves as an analyst for CNN, a security consultant, and a firearms instructor. And he's a real, true patriot, a real hero. And Maddie, Jen, and I are honored to have him in the back room this week. Michael, welcome into the back room. Thank you for having me on. So before we get started, I I just want to say that um, I've had a lot of really cool people on this podcast. I have not looked forward to a conversation more than this one for a lot of reasons. And I want to start by thanking you. I want to thank you for all the people who really understand uh, what you did on January 6th, uh, 2021, 
and uh, thank you for the sacrifices that you made, not just on that day, but that you, you continue to make. But even more importantly, I want to thank you for uh, the people who I think you have referred to as, uh, correct me if I get this wrong, but uh, miscreants, misfits, and morons. I know, I've, I think I've heard you say that. I want to thank you for those people because they're just too stupid to understand what you did that day and and under, and to appreciate what you did that that day. So it's really important that uh, I, I thank you for them because they're just never going to do it. So I, I wanted to start with that. Well, I appreciate that, but uh, I mean, honestly, no, no thanks needed. Well, but uh, I, I do appreciate. You're it. humble, and 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 I expected you to say that. But uh, the other thing I want to say is, I know you like salty language. I like salty language, so fucking say whatever you want when we talk. Okay, no, I appreciate that. There's no censors in this room. Uh, and the other thing too is, I want to say that I, uh, I like a lot of people have heard you on on countless interviews for the last almost two years. And uh, often it's just a minute here, two minutes there, five minutes there. And everybody kind of zeroes back to the same things. And some of which I think is critical. Some of it I think is just playing on the sensational. But uh, I'm happy that we're going to have some time to talk today because I want to talk more so about not what Michael Fanone, a cop, did that day, but Michael Fanone. Who is Michael Fanone? The man behind all of this that we've all listened to and heard and experienced uh, for the last couple of years. And I read your book. Your book came out. I'm going to talk a little bit, uh, a lot about that in a minute. But I, I wanted to say that I, uh, I don't often read books very quickly. I have the attention span of a five-year-old, and it usually takes me about three months to read a book. I sat down last Saturday with yours and knocked it out in one day which for me is unbelievable. And so, interestingly, what I read in your book is that when you would go to court during trials, you would do a lot of research on the perpetrator, just the case, the facts of the case, I think the the prosecutor perhaps, so that you could be as prepared as possible. Because in your earlier career, you were a little bit of a cowboy, right? And you would perhaps waltz into court and just kind of wing it. And uh, you learned, I guess, the hard way that winging it doesn't exactly get you the conviction rate that you might want. I'm curious to know, uh, before we really get into the the main part of the conversation, is um, did you do any research on me today? None. Okay. Whatsoever. Good. Um, (laughs) There's something that I wanted to share with you uh, as it relates to, uh, I think there's even a, a chapter in your book called, I think, Trauma is Trauma. Um, my late wife was an actor and a filmmaker. Her name was Adrienne Shelley. She made the film Waitress, which became a big bu- a musical on Broadway. And she was brutally murdered in uh, 2006. And I found her. So there's something about you and your life and your situation and the way you deal with trauma that really resonates with me because I've been there in, an, in a different kind of way. And I still deal with that. So I, I really understand and appreciate people who do experience horror in the way that that uh, that you did. So before we get started, we like to get a window into people's souls in a way that we may not have seen in other ways. Um, and we're going to talk about a lot of heavy stuff today, but let's talk about something kind of light to start with. Michael Fanone, are you a cat or a dog person? Before you answer that, you know, I, I, I you got this tough persona, the, the lumberjack facial hair, the tats on the neck, I, but I see you sort of curled up on a couch with a pussy cat. Am I wrong? Man, you're 
totally wrong. <laughs> I'm, I'm a dog guy all day long. I love my dog. What kind of dog? He's a uh, train walker coonhound. Okay. I was going to say, don't say Doberman, because that would have just been like so, uh, like what everyone would think you'd have. Uh, but all right, so you don't have a cat. No, no cat. All right. The other thing I wanted to know is... We've seen you in such an intense mode for almost two years. I mean, the intensity that comes off of you, and rightly so, is so palpable. But I want to know what makes you laugh. Who makes you laugh? What comedians do you think are funny? Uh, you know, I'm not really uh, much of a uh, like a stand-up comedy guy, to be honest with you. Uh, I mean, I like dry humor. I like sarcasm. Um, I mean, if you get an opportunity, Alex Morris wrote a uh, profile on me in uh, Rolling Stone. And I, I mean, I think that um, she did a great job of capturing uh, my sense of humor in in uh, in that piece. But yeah, I mean, I I, I feel like I have the quintessential uh, cop humor, which is dark, sarcastic, cynical, uh, <laughs> and oftentimes inappropriate. Um, it's that like sense of humor that only police officers get. And everybody else looks at, like, um, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> well, I used to do stand-up back in the day, and there's nothing, in my opinion, in terms of comedy that's inappropriate. But, um, all right. Well, that's, you know, it sounds like you're a little bit maybe of a comedy cliche, but that's okay. That's okay. So, you know, I sort of maybe had you rolling on the floor watching Ace Ventura or Austin Powers or something, but yeah. that's, that's two strikes against me. Um, so in your book, there are several things that we learn about you that I think most people would not think is true or most people wouldn't think that that's the case. For example, um, you, your ex-wife and your three daughters are Asian American. That's something that I, I found surprising because we all have a tendency to sort of look at someone and listen to someone and know that and think we know their story. But then you sort of peel away the layers and you realize this is why we don't judge books by their cover. Uh, you voted for both Obama and Trump, not just Trump. And, you know, we've heard you on TV say that you were, you were, uh, you had voted for Trump. Um, I was surprised that you only have a GED because to me, you sound like a guy with a PhD in poli sci and psychology. You're a smart, guy and you came from a background with uh people who uh, parents who were um educated and held that your father was a lawyer and i think your mom was a social worker right yep yeah she was a social worker and a trauma therapist so i found that interesting and then i think the most important thing that i took away from the book in terms of a surprise was that i think a lot of people or most people think you were stationed at the capitol that day you know and i was kind of shocked that you were, you know, you were a vice cop. You were doing drug busts in the projects in, in D.C., working undercover with sources and, and self-deployed to the Capitol. I don't think anyone really knows that about you. And that's a really fascinating thing. Do cops do that often? Do you self-deploy when you feel like you hear, you hear something that you have to go and uh, become a part of? Uh, I mean, it, it's hard to... Um it's really hard to say because I, I don't think that I, I mean, it's certainly not in my career, which spanned two decades. Uh, did I ever experience anything like uh, January 6th? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I never had or never felt a need to um, self-deploy uh, in that 
particular manner. Um, but I mean, it was clear to me that, uh, you know, just from the distress calls coming out from the Capitol, the fact that, you know, the United States Capitol Police put out an agency distress call. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, this was a once in a career um, scenario. And uh, and I felt like it was my responsibility, my job to uh, to go there. And was that the same for a lot of cops? Like, and I maybe maybe it's hard to put a number on that, but like, did a lot of cops do that that day? Yes, mm -hmm. uh, especially. I mean, you know, you have the United States Capitol Police, uh, which is one of seventy plus law enforcement agencies that uh, you know operates within the District of Columbia, but their job to uh, secure the Capitol complex and protect members of Congress uh, and visitors that, that come to the Capitol. Um, now, I used to be a Capitol Police officer. I was a Capitol Police officer from 2001 to 2002, uh, but I left and lateral to the Metropolitan Police Department, which is the uh, agency, um, the more traditional law enforcement agency in Washington, DC. Essentially, if you call 911, it's the Metropolitan Police Department that shows up. Mm -hmm. And in that department, I spent pretty much my entire career in what we call small mission units, which are, um, or my unit was uh, focused on narcotics trafficking and uh, violent criminals. Um, but, uh, but on that day, I, I recognized the severity of, uh, of what was happening and um, made the decision, like hundreds of other D.C. police officers did that day, to uh, self-dispatch to the Capitol. And when you made that decision, in the, in the time frame that you made that decision, what went through your head? Was it like, all right, I'm going to go there. There'll probably be a couple of knuckleheads that we have to, you know, throw in cuffs and bring into the station. Or did you have a real sense in that moment when you were on your way over that this is going to be a hundred times worse than anything you could have ever imagined. No, I mean, I didn't think about anything other than the fact that, uh, you know, there, there were distress calls coming out. It was clear that they needed uh, any and every able-bodied police officer in the vicinity. I mean, they were calling for agencies outside of the District of Columbia. Mm -hmm. That being said, I didn't fully appreciate the severity um, or the brutality of the violence until I found my way to the Lower West Terrace Tunnel. Mm -hmm. um, right. You know, when I made my way up to the Capitol, I entered from the south side. Uh, from the south side, from that particular vantage point, I mean, you really can't see the um, the West Terrace. And so I saw a few hundred uh, angry protesters, you know, kind of milling about, yelling, screaming, chanting. Uh, I mean, they were acting like assholes, but uh, I didn't see anything, you know, particularly violent in right. there. Uh, it hadn't gotten crazy yet. Super crazy. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it, it certainly hadn't gotten crazy in that particular area of the Capitol. Right. That being said, um, you know, from watching video and, and from speaking to hundreds of other officers that were, you know, on the West Terrace pretty much from the beginning of the day at 1 p.m. when the first police line was breached, until well after I was, you know, taken away from the Capitol. Right. Uh, they were fighting for their lives. Right. Yeah. And I want to get into that that particular day a little further down 
in our in our conversation. But the book that came out uh, recently, last week, I believe, uh, it's called "Hold the Line: The Insurrection and One Cop's Battle for America's Soul." Um, as I started reading this book, and certainly by the time I was finished, it became so apparent to me that the the anger and the rage and the disappointment and shock and sadness and the pain that you've gone through is so palpable, but still so raw. That's what I took away, that that you're still a guy walking around with a ton of rage. Is that true? I don't know if I'd say rage, but, uh, you know, I'm definitely pissed off. There's a fine uh, line between... I mean, to me, to me rage, uh, you know, denotes some level of uh, a lack of control. Um, I mean, I, I certainly feel like I'm completely in control. Right. Uh, that being said, yeah, I am angry. Maybe um, en- enraged is a better word. Um, and so how are you doing? Uh, it's been almost two years. Um, what do you do to deal with that kind of emotion and feeling and anger and being pissed off? Are you in therapy? Like, do you, assuming you have a good support system that you're able to lean on? I mean, I spent uh, the first year uh, after January 6th in, you know, everything from physical therapy to cognitive therapy, trauma therapy. Uh, yeah, I saw a whole host of, uh, of doctors and, and medical personnel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fortunate in that, you know, I've made a full recovery from the physical injuries that I sustained that day. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I, I do feel as though I have um, come to terms with the um, psychological and and um, emotional trauma that I experienced as a result of January 6th. That being said, I mean, the aftermath, um, you know, the ridicule and the uh, threats uh, that come from you know, speaking out or speaking up, placing yourself in an adversarial uh, role uh, against uh, Donald Trump and and his supporters. Um, I mean, it's traumatic, and I don't know if uh, I mean, I don't know. Like, I uh, I deal with it by continuing to engage and and um, you know push for uh, for accountability. Mm-hmm. The th- the other thing in um, the the opening of the book, you have a quote from Joan Baez, uh, which says, "Action is the antidote uh, to despair," uh, which was surprising. I, I never expected to open your book and see the opening quote be from Joan Baez. She reached out to me pretty early on after January sixth, and and um, you know we became friends. Mm-hmm. She was very supportive of me and and my family. Um, uh, introduced me to uh, a lot of uh, very interesting yet incredibly supportive, uh, I, I guess I'd call them characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I felt, uh, you know, when I heard that that was a quote of hers, I, I thought it was fitting. Mm-hmm. And you've also uh, become friendly with uh, Sean Penn, Nancy Pelosi, Eric Swalwell, uh, who actually introduced us. Uh, Adam Kinzinger, uh, how important to you has it been to have people like that on your side who have such enormous platforms across the political 
and creative spectrum in terms of amplifying not the nitty-gritty details of what happened that day, but just the uh, the more macro picture of what you took away from that and what you want to then put out in the world because of that day? Uh, I mean, listen, I, I think that um, w- especially with regards to like myself and, and Kinzinger, Swalwell, Cheney, um, you know, all of those people have experienced, um, you know, we, we all share kind of a similar kinship in that, you know, it, at points, our um, outspokenness has uh, drawn the air of uh, of Donald Trump or his you know his supporters, and um, in a lot of instances, you know, with the exception of Swalwell, uh, we all lost our jobs. Um, although I, I think if uh, the Republicans take the House, uh, Swalwell is going to wish he lost his job. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. But, you know the. <laughs> These were just uh, people that reached out to me mm-hmm. um, that were genuine in their concern. I mean, I'm not a star fucker. I don't give a shit if you're, you know, the president of the United States or I don't know, like Joe Schmo from, you know, the neighborhood bar. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were, uh, you know, genuinely concerned. Um and not just for me, but uh, for my family and supportive. So, you know, I'm appreciative and, and I'm, uh, I feel fortunate to, to count them as friends. Yeah, no, I think it's really important that you look at other cases throughout modern history where something happened to someone or somebody's convicted wrongly and a celebrity comes forward, whether it's like Pearl Jam and the Memphis Three or cases like that where you know without that kind of public profile and that that platform that these people have sometimes the the story just gets swallowed up by the by the earth and and no one gives a shit you know um the first line of your book you write my great-grandfather came to america to escape fascism and uh you mentioned before about trump and accountability given what we've witnessed after the election after the insurrection, after what happened to you, um, what we've experienced from the Republican Party since, are we now, f- in a way, fighting fascism? And does that have a special appeal to you in the sense of making your fight to to get accountability much more important and meaningful? I mean, I, I believe that we are. Um that being said, like, I, I hate using uh, these kind of buzzwords. I mean, not that fascism is a buzzword, but I mean, you see that the reaction that it garners from, um, you know, people, uh, you know, Republicans or, or people on the right. Yeah. Well, fascists I mean, often we, hate being called fascists, just like racists hate being called racists. It doesn't mean we should, right, we should I mean, stop calling them that. What we had was a, uh, a president who um, had no respect for. Uh, Americans uh, vote, uh, cared nothing for the democratic process, only wanted to, um, you know, instill himself uh, as president. And we saw evidence of that, um, you know, as was brought to light by the the select committee. Um, That being said, I think, you know, unfortunately, we he's found a support base that uh wants to win at all costs Mm -hmm. and they like the fact that uh they've 
they've got a, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, a leader who um, who's willing to engage in, in that type of uh, politics, the win at all cost uh, politics. Yeah. And that's but, you know, when you talk about uh, a, a leader who wants to steal elections, who's corrupt, who is considered to considers himself above the law and you have a an entire segment of the political spectrum that supports that and wants to do away with the media and free and fair elections, it's hard not to look at that as fascism, you know, uh, uh, not being fascism. Um, the injuries that you suffered, you had traumatic brain injury, you had a heart attack that day as a result of electric shock, the tasing, uh, you had three large scars or still you have three large scars between your neck and shoulders, PTSD, uh, obviously a stress disorder. Uh, you said in the book, by June 2020, I felt fucking lucky just to be alive. And you also talk about thoughts of suicide, which obviously we know other officers did take their own lives. Makes the whole reaction from the the right even more infuriating when, when you think about the fact that they, they just don't seem to give a shit about any of this. Um, you know, you say since, quote, since the Capitol riot, I've struggled with the physical an emotional aftermath of the attack. On my worst days, the deliberate suppression of my real-life trauma, it never, like, it never happened, dude, or if it did, it wasn't that bad, has triggered very dark thoughts. Please tell us that like, all of that is in your past, like you, you've been able to get a hold on at least that part. Because I can imagine the stuff that makes you angry is still going on. Every day you turn on the TV and there's some jerk on the right Who's deny? I mean, we have I think over three hundred election deniers running in the Republican Party in two weeks. People who li- literally support what happened that day, and if they're supporting what happened that day, they're they're supporting what happened to you that day. So, are you still de- dealing with those kind of dark thoughts and dark places? No, I mean that's the short answer. Mm-hmm. Well, that's um, good, and that's that's the only that, answer that matters really. That, yeah, that that trauma in a lot of ways, or it has, a, at least I believe, resolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've resolved that. But that being said, it's not that I'm uh, immune from, you know, being cynical about things mm-hmm. or um, feeling as though, uh, you know, I'm pissing in the wind here. Um, but I, uh, like I made the decision really before I wrote this book. I mean, at the time I was deciding whether or not to, you know, to go forward with this, uh, cause I knew it was kind of like, that was it, you know, that was going to be the end of my law enforcement career. I had to make a decision here as to, um, you know, who I was going to be, uh, moving forward. Mm-hmm. And, and I also knew that there was a good chance that, um, I wouldn't be successful. Uh, that the book wouldn't be well received uh, or that the things that I'm advocating for, like accountability for those criminally culpable for January 6th, that may never come to fruition. You know, we, we, may, we may never see, um, you know, Donald Trump tried by 12 Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's and, more and likely I, now than, than it yeah. has been. So you may, you may get that opportunity to see that. But yeah, it's just... Know. I'm sorry, go ahead. But I, I just I just decided that, uh, you know, I was going to uh, engage in this social experiment and see how long I could make a living, uh, living a life of principle. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so here I am and, and I'm, you know, I'm grateful for uh, the support that I've received up to this point, but uh, I, it's, a, it's just about telling the truth about what my experience was on January 6th. And if it's, um, you know, if we succeed uh, in a, holding people accountable, that's fantastic. If not, you know, I'll, uh, I'll figure something else out. Well, I think you're you're part of the process, and and the process is, I think, moving in a direction that hopefully some of us are going to be very happy with at some point. Back in the book, you, you talk about Leslie, which I found like one of the most fascinating parts of of your book because I I think that gave me a real window into who you are. Uh, because Leslie, as you write, is a uh, was a six foot tall black transgender sex worker. She became like family to you. You brought her home. You introduced her to your kids. She really was a part of your family. But you say in the book, quote, a lot of cops were repulsed by Leslie. They expressed shock that I would hug an HIV positive trans- transgender woman or kiss her on the cheek. They couldn't believe that I'd bring this woman home to meet my daughters. I guess they couldn't see her as I did, a human like any other, seeking only survival and love. That's that's some pretty powerful shit coming from somebody who we really don't know. And we don't know unless you write a book and tell us who you are. And so I found that really fascinating. What was it, why do you think you versus those the mentality of so many other cops enables you to sort of bring someone like that into your life, bring someone like that into your family. I don't know, to be honest with you. I mean, um, when I started my policing career at the Metropolitan Police Department, I was just a uh, white kid that grew up in a middle-class home in the suburbs. Uh, I had no idea what the black experience was like in America. Um, I had no idea what it was like to live at or below the poverty line. Um, I had no experience with, uh, you know, any form of uh, illegal drugs, let alone understood what it was like to be addicted to one or or several of them. Um, And I didn't know a transgendered person uh, and didn't know uh, anyone that was HIV AIDS positive. And so, you know, at the beginning, our relationship was very transactional. I was a police officer uh, and she was one of my informants. Mm -hmm. That being said, um, you know, over the course of time, Leslie just became a, um, you know, everyday part of my life, just like any other officer that I saw uh, on a daily basis. And, um, you know, she became a trusted confidant and also, um, you know, someone who on more than, you know, one occasion I placed my uh, life in her hands and, um, and realized that, uh, you know, who she really was as a, as a, as a human being. Mm -hmm. And on January 6th, you were supposed to work with her. And you and you you uh, didn't. And I think was that uh, was that the last time you saw her because she took ill, and you obviously experienced what you experienced on that day. And you kind of just you, the the relationship took a different turn. Um, is that how it happened? Yeah. So we were supposed to um, 
like you said earlier, I was uh, I was working in a narcotics unit. Um, that particular day, we were helping some other officers uh, that that were assigned to my office do a, a controlled narcotics buy for heroin, and um, it was probably uh, maybe a little after one p.m. when I started hearing reports about the uh, police lines at the Capitol having been breached and the officers that were under attack. And I, I called her up and told her that, you know, we wouldn't be doing that, um, that buy today. Um, we exchanged some text messages uh, in the immediate aftermath of January 6th. I mean, she knew that I was injured and, and I was hospitalized, but uh, I wasn't allowed to have any visitors mm -hmm. um, because of COVID restrictions. And then I, I believe it was like early uh, February that I learned that she had suffered a series of strokes and um and had uh passed away and you felt uh you write in the book that you felt a lot of guilt because when she, you felt that when she needed you you weren't you weren't you just weren't able to be there in that way uh which of course is a certainly justifiable human emotion but obviously you had other things you were dealing with you know yeah no it, it, it broke my heart mm -hmm. yeah i you know I, keep, I said before, judging a book by its cover, you know, and that's why we don't do that. But uh, I, I think, you know, you write about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and in a similar way, you wrote that, you know, if you, you know, see the humanity in people, you will meet, uh, the, if you see the humanity in the people you will meet today, you know, or because you no longer see the humanity in people, you cease to see, you cease to see them as people. And uh, they become the enemy and therefore disposable. And you wrote, um, I'm certain that by the time Derek Chauvin choked the life out of George Floyd, he did not view him as a human being. Um, so many, I mean, I empathize with cops in a big way because I'm not a fan of all the progressive, you know, defund the police and all cops are bad, you know, and I've had my, my share of arguments with people about that. Uh, and and the, the, at the same time, recognize the need to reform police. But uh, I think it is, it, it, again, it's, it's important that you wrote this book because it does give people a window into who you are and how you look at people and the humanity you, you uh, put them through. They're, they're not just informants on the street. They're not just, you know, people who you arrest. Uh, and it's clear that that's very important to you that you see people as humans yeah i mean i listen i i didn't start off that way and I, I certainly um fell into uh you know the same pitfalls that i think many officers experience throughout their careers i mean there were times when um you know i was indifferent uh indifferent to the communities that i was charged with keeping safe uh indifferent to you know individuals that i was interacting with um but what I wanted to do by writing the book was um, to be as transparent as possible so that people could better understand what it's like to be a street cop. I mean, I was a street cop essentially for 20 years. I never sought promotion. Um, it just wasn't anything that I was interested in. I wanted to be uh, wanted to be the police. Mm -hmm. And um, I want people to understand, you know, you talked about the defund the police movement. And, um, you know, I, I used the George Floyd 
scenario quite often um, with regards to officers that experience what uh, what Derek Chauvin uh, experienced, which is what I believe, you know, there's been accusations of racism. I don't know. Derek Chauvin may be a racist. Uh, but what I saw evidence was that Derek Chauvin lost sight of George Floyd's humanity. Uh, he didn't treat him like a human being. He treated him like an animal. And obviously that's wrong. And Derek Chauvin is where he belongs, which is in prison. That being said, police officers uh, are faced with uh, individuals who are at their worst. And we do it day in and day out for, you know, years on top of years, on top of decades. Uh, and so, you know, you are going to experience this um, fatigue uh, over time. And what is it that we're doing to, uh, to address that? Um, you know, how are our officers uh wellness uh being maintained uh, or are we you know setting up officers for um for failure and I, I think that that is something that most certainly needs to be addressed uh it was never addressed throughout my career i just happened to be fortunate and uh came to some of these realizations myself and uh, on several occasions i remember making the decision you know listen i just don't give a fuck um Maybe I shouldn't be a cop anymore. And, um, you know, fortunately, something would come along or somebody would come along and, and kind of, uh, you know, reignite that uh, fire that I had when I, you know, first became a cop. Uh, and I could, you know, find myself um, keeping that commitment. Um, but, you know, for other cops, that might not happen. And then you end up with... Um, you know, with more Derek Chauvin's. Yeah, and I think, I, I think there are people who would take the position that, and, and I'll use your word, fatigue, that there seems to be a lot more fatigue on the part part of cops when it comes to uh, uh, black men, for example, rather than whites. So that racism is definitely a part of that. Um, and, and I think the distinction with you that I took away from the book is that, and whether it's that you have uh, a wife, an ex-wife and kids who are, are not white and are members of a, a minority, there's something about you that ha it, allowed, it seems to allow, have allowed you to look at people in a different way. Because I think that's the biggest beef that, you know, I have an 18-year-old daughter, you know, you live in a democratic house and you have an 18 year old daughter, you're going to be dealing with, with a lot of interesting conversations in particular about police and policing. And, but there clearly is a, a, a problem when it comes to racism with, with cops, because we're seeing it time and time again. And so I don't know if it's fair just to attribute it to fatigue, but that's definitely part of it. I mean, what do you think is the biggest need for reform in an institutional way, you know, people will say that from top to top to bottom, the police force needs to be, you know, reformed. That there's institutional racism, yada yada yada. But in your opinion, having done it for decades, uh, but also with an eye of 
seeing people as human beings, which I, I do think in a lot of ways may be unique. What do you think is the, the big fix? What, what do we need to do to stop all this craziness? Uh, enhanced training. Uh, I think that, um, you know, coming from it, from a realistic perspective, um, you know, policing and, and police departments are a microcosm of society. And, the, you know, unfortunate reality is that there are racist people in our society. And so there are most certainly going to be racist cops. Mm -hmm. uh, that being said, you know, there are things that we can do, obviously, to, you know, monitor uh, and look out for police officers who, um, you know, engage in, in that type of uh, behavior. But for the most part, it's perfectly, uh, you know, there is a possibility that officers can make it through an entire career harboring, you know, racist ideology um, without ever, you know, uh, having that uh, affect their um, their work. Mm -hmm. I believe that, um, you know, the best way to go forward is to have an incredibly well-trained police department, especially when it comes to using force. Um, you know, police departments' responsibilities vary from state to state jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, you know, what happens in a rural town is dramatically different from an inner city mm -hmm. police department. That being said, the way police officers use force against other Americans uh, should be the same, regardless of where you are. Uh, and I think that if police officers were trained appropriately, and I'm not talking about, um, you know, the way that we currently train uh, in a static environment where no officer is placed under stress or duress and then forced to make, um, you know, potentially uh, life changing decision. Um, you know, the training needs to be appropriate. It needs to be done um, consistently. Uh, and then once we have achieved that high standard, uh, we can hold those officers uh, to that standard. And I think that, um, you'll see use of force go down. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I was in, when I worked in the training field, <clears throat> we used to say that, um, training breeds proficiency in your weapons and your tactics, uh, and proficient officers are confident and confident officers use less force. Uh, oftentimes I think we see, you know, these scenarios that play out on television where you're looking at the officer's behavior and you feel it so egregious that it must be racially motivated. And in reality, um, you know, while I'm not going to say that uh, it's never racially motivated, I feel like looking at it as a veteran cop, more often than not, what you're dealing with are officers who lack the confidence, lack the training, uh, to handle these situations and they resort to something that uh, ends up being disastrous yeah. and catastrophic. Yeah, it just seems like it's a it's a classic like chicken and egg thing. W w what's coming first? Are they are they doing what you say because of the job and the training and 
is that most of it or are they finding themselves in these disastrous situations because when it's a black kid it's bringing out a lot of stuff in them that they don't go through and i mean is the outcome different and you know no one knows for sure obviously and certainly it happens in a lot of cases i you know what number what percent who knows but uh it's got to be a lot of that is driven by racism i agree with you like i agree with you to an extent but i'll, I'll say this you know, I think it's incredibly important to have police officers from the community um, as opposed to hiring from outside the community. Right. Uh, I mean, I'll give you an example. Like here in Washington, D.C., the Metropolitan Police Department is we're hemorrhaging police officers, uh, especially in the wake of, you know, the past five years. And, and then, you know, in addition to that, January 6th. Mm-hmm. And so we're you know, we're doing hiring, uh, you know, events as far away as New York City and and um, throughout the country, really. Uh, we would rather hire from within the city, but unfortunately, we've created this environment where nobody wants to be a cop anymore. Right. Um, and so, I mean, that's defeatist in and of itself. Like, if you make the job so undesirable, it doesn't matter what you're paying people. We're offering you know, salary increases, $20,000 hiring bonuses, and no one's showing up to the hiring events. And it's because no one wants to take that job. Yeah. Or under the current institutional right. framework, perhaps, you know. And I mean, and it, you know, police officers are the backbone of our public safety infrastructure. Uh, you know, I'll never be, I'll never sit here and tell you that policing or police officers are above reproach. And there most certainly is a need for reform. But the way we've gone about having this conversation has been so counterproductive that I think that we have um, hurt the criminal justice system. We've hurt policing in a way that, um, you know, may not be repairable uh, in the immediate future. Yeah, um, I think it's going to take years. And at the at that, you know, during that time, who is it that's suffering the most? It's communities of color, mm-hmm. uh, communities where police officers are most needed, professional police officers are most needed. Well, they re- and rhetoric is extreme. It's And it's extreme on, on both sides. And, and that's, to your point about it, none of this is helpful. I mean, again, defund the police is the most moronic thing I've ever heard. And, you know, I, I've debated people endlessly on that. And uh, But when people are, you know, full of their own rhetoric... They think they're, you know, they're they're spewing the gospel when, in fact, they're being incredibly counterproductive in the conversation. Oh, I agree. I, I mean, I, I think it's going to take uh, people, and this is you could talk say this about a lot of issues. I think in the U.S., people, unfortunately, um, you know, our politicians are not facilitating constructive conversations between, you know, whether in this particular instance we're talking about communities and police departments. Mm-hmm. They're not doing a good job of that. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it's going to take police departments and communities um, going around our politicians and just having direct communications and police or communities are going to have to engage more. They're going to have to, you know, show up to community meetings, not just the, you know, activists, Mm -hmm. ones that, you know, want to dismember, you know, dismember or uh, disable law enforcement, you know, and it, it's um, it's going to take everyone getting engaged and talking about what it is, what are their expectations from their police department. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know and we got. I'm sorry, being go ahead. willing to listen. Yeah, 
I know we have just a few more minutes left, so there's a couple of things I wanted to get to, but I, there is some humor in your book. Amidst all the horror, there's some humor. And the funniest fucking thing in your book, in my opinion, you, you took a shower uh, after Pence certified the election, the night, the middle of the night of uh, January 7th, I guess is the date. But you said, quote, my body felt like it was on fire. I remember looking down at the drain as the different chemicals hit the shower tiles and congealed, and I realized they formed a river of orange. I laughed, and through the pain, I thought to myself, this is what it looks like whenever Donald Trump takes a shower. <laughs> I mean, you're my hero just for that line. <laughs> like, how you could think of that? <laughs> Even when I voted for Donald Trump, I, I always thought that, uh, you know, that anytime somebody would call him like the orange man or, or reference his, um, I, I don't know if that's a spray on tan or what the hell that is, but anyway, probably all the above the complexion was just outrageous and, uh, it would make me laugh. Our, remember, orange Jesus is the new one. That's Liz Cheney. That's the best of them all. So, so I, I mean, that was just uh, a thought that I had. And, um, and I remember talking to, uh, you know, my co-writer, John Schiffman and, and, uh, retold that store and he laughed his ass off and mm -hmm. had to be put in the book i gotta ask i want to talk about the times you took your daughter you went back to the tunnel and your daughters to the tunnel uh before we close out but the the gods of podcasting would slap me in the face if i didn't go here and that is you you did you mentioned just before you voted for trump which and you also voted for obama but you, you had said that you were a one issue um, uh, voter. And that issue was Trump presented himself as supportive, highly supportive, maybe uniquely supportive of law enforcement. You know, I kind of look at that and I feel like, okay, that's kind of weird to me because, you know, even in 2015, there was a lot of people who looked at him and was like, this guy's bad news and he's going to fucking destroy America. How, how did people who vote for him not see that? But let's put that aside for a second. The bigger issue, the question I want to ask you is, what do you say to the people who say, it's people like you who voted for him who may help make this happen? That January 6th, without people who voted for him, there is no January 6th. What do you say to those people? Uh, I mean, um, listen, I've been... Uh pretty transparent about why I supported Donald Trump in 2016. Um, and I'm not here to make excuses. I'm just simply here to tell you that uh, didn't vote for Donald Trump because I'm a racist. I didn't vote for Donald Trump uh, because I'm a fascist. I voted for Donald Trump because he espoused support for law enforcement at a time in which I felt the Democratic Party, some of its members' uh, rhetoric resulted in law enforcement officers being assaulted, and uh, in some instances, the assassination-style killings of police officers mm -hmm. in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, and we know that now for a fact, uh, that there were individuals who were inspired by the rhetoric that they heard, um, and they killed cops. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, police officers of color um, for doing nothing other than, you know, something really horrific like sitting in their squad car and having lunch mm -hmm. or talking to their family members on the phone or uh, working a security detail at a black lives matter rally protecting the protesters and um being gunned down by you know 
by someone who uh, hated the police. Mm-hmm. Um, those are real things. It really happened. And if you think that it didn't spread like wildfire through the law enforcement community, uh, it did. Oh, we're still seeing it. I mean, last week we find out that the Secret Service and maybe some in the FBI are still are still there. And, you know, so, it's there. I mean, so that, you know, that was it. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, listen, did I realize pretty early on that, um, you know, that I may have, um, that I regretted my decision? Of course I did. Mm-hmm. Um that being said, I mean, uh, I, I don't think anyone could have, or at least I could never have foreseen uh, Donald Trump inciting a um, an insurrection. Uh, but he did it. And, you know, despite all of those things, I went there. And so did hundreds of other police officers that voted for Donald Trump. 74 million people went there. So, yeah, I mean, you know, people went there for various reasons you know um you're 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 not alone i mean 74 million people voted for donald trump you at one point you went back to the tunnel and you you played your body-worn camera footage you literally like retraced your steps and then you went through you went to the windows you looked out on the the mall and 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 you cried why was it important to go back there and and go back there and do it that way and did you find that somehow when you've left that that gave you peace that gave you some kind of i mean i'm not a big big believer in closure and closure is kind of a crazy concept but did it did it give you something that when you left you were like fuck yeah i'm glad i did that really glad i did that i mean um i wanted to go there and i i think i i brought my kids for two different reasons one of them um you know they've been my um my support system throughout this uh experience. Mm-hmm. That being said, I, I wanted them to understand what their father did and what so many other officers did in that tunnel. And I wanted them to understand like how inspired I was by these other police officers. Um, you know, I knew quite a few of the officers that um that were there in the tunnel. Um I had known them through, you know, various points in my career. Obviously, I didn't know at the time uh, that they were all there, but some of them I recognized. Obviously, my partner, Jimmy Albright, was there. Uh, I later learned that uh, my former partner, uh, Jeff Leslie, was in the tunnel with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ramey Kyle. There were quite a few guys there that I had known. And I wanted um, my kids to understand that, you know, what that was like. Um, obviously, you know, in a way that was uh, that they could appreciate uh, without traumatizing them. Mm-hmm. But um, I also um, I want my kids to understand that uh, you know this whole idea that violence is never the answer. I think is a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to understand that there are some things that are worth fighting for. And in some cases, I, I think there are things that are worth dying for. Uh, I certainly um, would have been proud to have died alongside those officers in the tunnel. Yeah, I, it's just it's still one of those things that uh, I will never understand the reaction I mean, I do intellectually understand it. It stems from Trump and the cultism and all that. But that 
that Republicans have treated you and your fellow officers the way they have, you know, whether it's Clyde and Gosar and McCarthy and McConnell, um, it just, it's unbelievable. I don't know how you, how you reconcile, how you, your fellow officers reconcile that the, the, the back, the blue party, the law, you know, the law and order party that they're, that they've done and continue to do what they do. You know, I understand it for what it is. I mean, it, you know, it's pandering. You know, what Donald Trump did in 2016 for law enforcement and the military was just pandering. But it's even worse. I mean, I get it, what you're saying, but it's, it, to me, it's, it's fucking soulless. It's evil. It's pandering is, to me, like, you're, you're giving them a compliment because you're letting them off too easy. It's evil. It is absolutely evil. The shit that I've read in your book, and believe me, people, if you want to just really understand the, the behind-the-scenes machinations of, of, of the, the people in charge that day and going forward and, and how they approached people like Michael and, and other officers and denied them their legitimacy. I mean, it just is mind-numbing that we still have, whether it's 20, 30, 40% of this country, pick your number, but that people are still supportive of this kind of nonsense. It's, it's, it's insanity. And if I, I mean, if I were you, my head would be exploding, you know? You know, Andy, like, I'll be honest with you, man. I, I don't think the vast majority of Americans support Donald Trump. Uh, I think the the problem that we're having, especially within the Republican Party, is that, you know, you've got this hardcore element that supports Donald Trump. You know, these are the people that lived under the rock that Donald Trump kicked over mm -hmm. and invited to the Republican Party in, in 2015 and 2016. Uh, what I think is, you know, as or more uh, evil are the people that... Um, are just completely indifferent to what Donald Trump is doing to the other half of America, um, to, to all of America, really, uh, how he's manipulating Americans, how he's, you know, taking a shit all over democracy. Um, and, you know, that's that's the biggest issue I see is uh, and, and really and it's on both sides of the political aisle. Mm -hmm. Just yeah. absolute indifference as to, you know, what happened on January 6th and the threat that Donald Trump poses uh, to our democracy. Well, you it, you're closing in the book. You, you say, quote, the rule of law should mean something. If there is probable cause to believe Trump committed crimes, and by now there's little doubt, he should be charged, arrested, and tried. If convicted, Trump should go to prison for the rest of his life. He directed and unleashed an attack on American democracy and destroyed countless police officers' lives. People may say I'm bitter, but I don't give a fuck. I'm angry, I love my country, and I want justice. I'm with you on that. And I, I hope I, I, I think he's gonna he's gonna see justice really soon. Where and how and to what degree, I don't know. But the point you're making is it I do think it's what most Americans want. They don't think anybody's above the law. They do understand what happened that day. They understand what happened to you and your fellow officers. And they happened. Then they understand what happened, in a sense, to all of us that day. And how fragile, you know. I mean, I'm 63 years old. I woke up the next day realizing, holy shit, democracy is not forever. This literally is an experiment. And, um, and we, it might not work out in the end. I mean, that's, that was my takeaway from the select committee hearings, was how fragile democracy was and how few people really were responsible for holding it together. You know, we're a country of millions 
And, you know, maybe a few hundred people were really responsible for um, for holding it together. And who's to say that they're going to be there the next time? No, I mean, you look at a guy like Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, you know, he saved the day in Georgia. And what did the Georgia legislature do? They went out and said, OK, next election, Brad doesn't have the power he had anymore. Now it now it stays with us in the legislature. That shit's scary. Um, what's next for you? What are you what are you doing? You know, is there another book, a novel coming? What's happening? <laughs> I have no idea, to be honest with you, man. I I just uh, I, I'm still um, celebrating the. Uh, the success that we've had with the rollout of this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, seems to have been well-received. And, uh, it's a great book. I found, out, found out today that we uh, debuted number six on the New York Times bestsellers list. No, oh, congratulations. Never thought I'd be saying that I was a New York Times bestselling author. Yeah, so. Now you're going to be like a hoity-toity author, right? <laughs> going to all kinds of highbrow events in New York, high tea with right. like all kinds of fancy writers and stuff. You're going to shave, you're going to shave that thing on your face uh, when you go meet, hang out with other writers? They know better than to invite me to uh, those types of events. <laughs> you, you, might, you might find yourself getting invited. So I'm a big fan of the movie Serpico. I see a movie, Fanone. Right? Is that going to happen? I don't know. Nobody's been knocking on your door. No, no, uh, nobody's been knocking on my door. Who do you? Who would you want to play you? I've got a few ideas. We kicked it around here in the in the in the back room the other day. But here, you're su- no, no, no. Suggest- you go first. You go first. I don't know. I, I thought. Uh, I don't know, man. I somebody told me Christian Bale. I thought that sounded like a good idea. Bingo. That's what you were saying. I'm gonna I'm gonna turn the thing around here. I'm gonna show you Jen. Hi, I said. And Maddie. <laughs> Jen said Christian Bale. Very good. I My first thought was Bradley Cooper, which I could still see. But then I literally, I did like what every other schmuck does. And I went on Google and I was like, all right, actors with crazy facial hair. And uh, Jake Gyllenhaal came up. And I was like, Jake Gyllenhaal, you're 43, he's 42. There you go. And then I asked my daughter who works in casting as a professional. And she said John Bernthal, which is a really interesting choice. The last thing I want to ask you, uh, getting back to the window into the soul thing, is um, music really gives us a window into somebody's soul. So I want to know who is Michael Fanone's top five musical artists of all time. Uh, Char- well, I'll go with Sturgill Simpson's going to be my number one, just because. Uh, Man, you're making a you're being popular in our room here today. Yeah. So uh, and like every record that that he puts out mm-hmm. uh, right now, like I'm pretty big on uh, Charlie Crockett. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you've heard him, but... Uh, I've heard of Davy Crockett, but not Charlie Crockett. You know, Charlie Crockett's probably the best live performer that I've ever seen. Wow. Um, I'm writing yeah. that down. Yep. Definitely check him out. All right. That's um, three. He, uh, who else do I got in the... You know, your uh, buddy Eric Swallow had Taylor Swift on his list when he was on my show. He's a Swifty. Are you a Swifty? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> You say that very emphatically. All right, so you got two more. Man, that, you got me on the spot. I'm trying to think of uh, who else do I have in my uh, my current playlist right now. Of all time, that helps. Yeah, that, um, all time. Whiskey Myers, uh, big Whiskey Myers fan, and um, Tyler Childers. Okay. Wait, that is, our mathematician here says that's only four. You got one more. Mm, one more. Um Hmm. I'm going to like absorb the rest of the time on this podcast. Just think about what fucking band I like. Oh, Brent Cobb. There okay. you go. All right. A nice uh, eclectic list. Mm-hmm. I mean, you didn't throw the Beatles in. You didn't go, you didn't go cliche. You didn't do any of that. So I'm, I'm, 
Very yeah. impressive. And I, I don't want to like, I don't know if Taylor Swift watches this podcast. I don't want to piss her off, but uh, that's all right. She's got like four hundred like, million followers uh, on Twitter. I don't think okay. she'll she'll miss you, <laughs> or me for that right. matter. I do like again. I said I have an eighteen year old daughter, so I'm I'm well into the whole. Yeah, no, my thing. daughters love that shit. Yeah, um, I'm glad you said yeah. that, not me. Uh, framing it that way, actually. So, Michael, you've been uh, awesome. I really hope that the people listening see you in a way that they haven't seen before. That was my goal. Hope you um, enjoyed talking about some of the stuff about your life and and the way you think and the way you live your life. And I hope you'll come back at some point. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate you guys having me on. So thank you. This Alrighty. was a blast. Okay. Thanks, Take buddy. Care. See you. So there you have it. Episode 21 in the can. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Osteroy. And please leave a review if you like the pod. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Matty Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, hero and patriot, Michael Fanone. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards. And we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.